Hey guys, welcome to the Miles Fit Transformation Show, an experience dedicated to your transformation on all levels, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and energetically. I'm Miles Kroll, your host, as well as the owner and founder of the Miles Fit Montreal Private Personal Training Studio. Tune in and listen up for this week's episode. In today's episode, I am joined by Bhaskar Goswami, well-known meditation specialist, yogipreneur, and man on a mission preaching a philosophy called Dana. In this episode, we delve into all of those topics where we discuss everything and anything from consciousness to responsibility to presence to the Dana philosophy and a variety of other empowering concepts to help grow you spiritually, energetically, and expand your mind and horizons. Listen up and tune in for this episode. You're going to love this one. Hey guys, Miles from Miles Fit. Today, I'm going to be having a great conscious conversation with my good friend, Bashkar Goswami, well-known yogi, meditation specialist, and teacher. We're gonna be talking about everything and anything under the sun, from consciousness to his story, to a very interesting phenomena that he has developed called Dana. And we're just gonna jump right into things. And Bashkar, say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody. <laughs> I just wanna express how happy I'm here to be with you, Miles, and thank you for this conversation. Cool, cool, cool. So why don't we start off with a little bit of background, kind of sure. who you are, your story, mm. that kind of stuff. Born in the manger I was, no, <laughs> no I, my goodness, where to begin? I was born in a, a town called Digboy in Assam, India, and uh, from the wellness perspective, in the school we were doing yoga every morning, so I was a little kid, you know, a thousand kids in white t-shirts and shorts, you know, all in nice rows and columns with a teacher and a megaphone shouting the instructions. So that's how I was introduced to yoga. A little meditation, then you salute the flag, sing the anthem, and off you go to school. So that was my introduction to, to yoga. Um, you know, from Assam, due to life situations, I ended up uh, moving to Kuwait in the Middle East. Uh, that's where uh, I really went deeper into practice, um, met a great yoga master, uh, Yogacharya Nanda Kumar. Um, took me in as his son, so I was very grateful for the, the lessons I learned in his presence. Um, yeah, the story kind of goes around. Ended up in England for a while uh, was as a refugee from the war, the Gulf War. Did my degree in electronic engineering in Nottingham. Uh, all the while, always practicing yoga and meditation. And uh, I guess the biggest break happened when my son was born, almost exactly 13 years ago. And that's when that shift happened from being an engineer to, to looking to bring wellness into workplaces. So that's where I created my first company, Bodhi. Um, and the Bodhi's intention, the word Bodh means uh, to awaken, to enlighten, so to plant the seed of awakening in different organizations and create the environment for it to flourish. So, uh, so that's when I became what I call a yogipreneur, to, to allow this beautiful you know, self-care practice to be enjoyed and to benefit everybody. Um, and yeah, that's kind of the highlights 
of uh, what brings me with Miles here. There's a lot, a lot of details there, of course, a lot of ups and downs, <laughs> near-death situations, dramas and fiascos. <laughs> but generally, yeah. You know, You're alive and kicking today. I'm here and I'll take that. I'm grateful. <laughs> so you were saying before that it was the birth of your son mm. that gave rise to starting, you said it was Bodhi. Bodhi? Yes, yes. Yeah? So what happened is I was an engineer by day, designing microcircuits, and evening a yoga enthusiast. And I really, I, I used to live with my yoga teacher. Uh, so he was downstairs, I was upstairs. At 5 a.m. in the morning, a group of us got together. We had this deep yoga meditation practice. So I showed up at work, like completely lit, like so awake, feeling like, you know, optimum health. And I saw my colleagues, you know, coming up the stairs, you know, a little bit haggard, you know, drinking five, six cups of coffee just to wake up. Uh, some of them had severe medical conditions as well. And I really felt that the simple, low-cost practice could help so many people. Uh, yet I was an engineer. So I had this vision of bringing wellness into workplaces. Um, and the tipping point happened when my son was born. And I called my friend in Toronto who I like a lot, and she left her budding uh, chartered accountancy career to design cards on the internet. I'm like, wow, Karen, that's bold of you to leave your career. And she just had a child, a few years old, and she told me, you'll soon find out that your son will learn from who you are, not from what you say. Mm. So if I, if I didn't follow my bliss, that's why I'll be transferring to my daughter, she said. So that was really what kind of awakened me up, very powerful. So I dedicated myself full time to being the bridge between the yoga world and the, and, the, and the corporate world. That's amazing. Yeah. I guess, you know, that, that idea that actions speak louder than words, mm. that you kind of have to embody and represent something and people do what they see, not what they hear. Yes, yes. That's amazing. That's, that's the kind of energy that I think is, uh, is missing so much. People, there's a lot yeah. of talk, mm. you know, about so many different topics mm. these days but not as much action yeah. and people really embodying and representing something. Mm. So that's cool that that really was kind of the genesis, mm. that idea to be able to create this thing. Yeah. So you've been going into corporations and companies and inspiring the suit and tie uh, people to... Uh, yes, my friend. Yeah? 12, 13, 13 years now with Bodhi. And uh, it's funny how when I go into these organizations, uh, they always tell me, you know, don't dress like a business person, dress like a yogi. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I think they appreciate that cognitive dissonance. You know? mm. but however, before I give a conference or a workshop or lead a retreat, very often they, they introduce, says, oh, this is Pascal, he's a design engineer with a master's in engineering, although I'm not talking about engineering at all. But it kind of gives that, that sort of, hey, he's one of us. You know? He's been there. He's been in front of the computer for over 10 hours a day, every single day. So it's that, that living compassion uh, that, you know, I'm not from somewhere else. I, I'm actually one of you guys. I've been there and I know this really helped me as I fully trust it will help you. Yeah, I think that's important for people to relate and connect yeah. on some level to be able to really hear the message. Mm. Because I do find when there's that disconnect between someone speaking and presenting. And I remember when I was in elementary school, sometimes they bring speakers in and teachers in. And if you didn't have that rapport or that connection or some way to relate to them, mm. the message never really sunk in. You got it. So I think that that's super important to kind of establish that rapport and connection from the get-go yeah. and then have that awareness from the audience. Yeah. And then from that awareness, be able to actually hear and feel the message that you're sharing. For sure. And I have no doubt, uh, knowing you now for quite some time, that uh, you deliver a powerful message. Thank you, and uh, regarding your message specifically, mm. you know, what are a couple of the key things you're mm. going in there to you know, resonate with people and share with people? 
the, the, the foundation on which I build everything is, is a very simple understanding that, uh, at least from the best of my understanding, we come into this, this earth empty-handed uh, from wherever and we have a bunch of experiences and then we leave empty-handed. You know? And all we have in the middle are a bunch of experiences. And to me, a, a successful life is a life that has pleasant experiences, good for ourselves and good for others. So in that foundation, we explore more what is a pleasant experience. What does that mean for us? Um, and, and this is something that has been explored by so many cultures, Eastern, Western, Ancient, Modern. So there's a lot to draw from, you know, in how to live skillfully in a way that's good for ourselves and good for our environment. And what would you say are like, you know, one or two key things, you said to live skillfully, mm. you know, one or two key things that people and your experience through walking your own path, mm. one or two things you feel people could really uh, benefit from in yes. terms of living a better life? So fundamentally, we're having a pleasant experience when the body and mind are comfortable. An unpleasant experience when the body and mind are uncomfortable. So the whole process is to have a comfortable body and mind, to put it very, very simply. Mm. So now we ask ourselves, how can we be more comfortable in our body, more comfortable in our mind? Um, and this word comfort, you know, it's something that seems to be misunderstood. And this is something I care deeply about. And I was at least taught from a very young age, the whole point of life is to be comfortable, you know, so you study hard, so you get that comfortable job, you know, in that comfortable house, in that, in that comfortable car and a comfortable sofa, so you can be comfortable. So imagine that, you know, a circle is our comfort zone, you know, whatever is inside that circle we're comfortable with, and outside we're uncomfortable with. And there's this direction of going towards the middle of the circle, that's where you know, that's a sweet spot, the indulgences, you know, the comfort right. foods, you know, that, that big sofa with that Netflix series that you love so much, that's right in the middle of the circle. We're very comfortable there. And the danger there is the comfort trap is if you hang out there too much, there's a law of nature. If you don't use it, you lose it. So the boundary of the comfort zone becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until we get trapped in our own comfort. And I see a lot of people who are trapped in that way. I've worked with top-level executives, industrials, and so on, yet they're trapped in their body. The body can barely move because too much comfort, not enough movement. Even teenagers, you know, too much in this, but the body's kind of trapped. Um, similarly with the mind, if, if you're always with the same kind of people, the same kind of ideas, they look like you, they talk like you, they think like you, they act like you, you get comfortable with that kind of people, everything else becomes uncomfortable, you know? So, to the point where you can actually be in that lazy boy watching their favorite show and you're still uncomfortable. You can be in that paradise with the palm trees and the luxury retreat and the mind is creating a havoc, you're uncomfortable. So what if comfort is not about going towards the center but more about making that comfort zone bigger and bigger and bigger so you're comfortable with more and more and more. So no matter what's happening, you're comfortable, you're having a pleasant life experience. So this is one framework I care about. So becoming Comfortably uncomfortable. You got it. So there is, a, there is a very important point here, which is the boundary of the comfort zone. So but whenever we do yoga, for example, we go through a boundary of the comfort zone. Not too much. You've got to respect the boundary. Yet you explore it. And there's a way to explore it. It's not a bravado, look, I'm a big hero thing. It's done with a lot of innocence, curiosity, patience, persistence. You explore, explore, explore. When I first started doing yoga, man, I was, I was like this. You know, and I saw my teacher, you know, sitting in a lotus pose. I'm like, wow, not in this lifetime. You know, 
But it so happens that as you explore, you become more comfortable, more comfortable. And then your body has a lot more range of movement. In yoga, you move your body in every conceivable way. So now, if I'm in a, in a mud hut in Calcutta, I'm comfortable. If I'm in a presidential meeting, in a global summit with leaders and presidents, I'm comfortable. So no matter what's happening, I'm comfortable. And that's the thing, you know, mentally as well. When I sit in meditation, I'm exploring and all these thoughts and emotions coming and going, and I'm sitting with it. I'm holding the space for them to come and go. I'm comfortable, no matter what thoughts and emotions come and go. That's the formal practice. So when life jams up and people behave in unwanted ways or unwanted situations happen, can you still be comfortable? Now that's skillful living. I mean, very well said. I, I think that uh, so many of us are susceptible to mm. the external reality influencing us mm. and determining and dictating how we feel. Mm. But not being able to cultivate within ourselves that, that comfort mm. and that power to be able to almost resist what's going on out there, to always have, I think T.S. Eliot called it the inner Tahiti. Mm. This place within ourselves, this, this blissful place, this, this comfort zone. But you still can be in an uncomfortable situation, mm. but be in a state of comfort within. I you think that's, that's what it. you're talking about, right? Yes. So uh, you have to really recognize that the center of that comfort zone is a very dangerous place. You know, if you live there, all the biggest diseases in society, by and large, is because we're too comfortable, you know? Too much sugar, too much fatty food, you know, too much junk food, or too much, you know, indulgence of emotions like anger, frustration, guilt, you know. If a house is on fire, there's no time for depression. You know, you, you have to move, you have to be active. I very often go into organizations and heavens forbid, if something happened, most of the people won't be able to run even 100 meters or, or, or jump, you know, things are going to fall apart. <laughs> too comfortable. So, I, I very, with a lot, lot of love and respect, I invite people to live on the boundary of the comfort zone, to keep exploring formal practice and informal practice. So, formal practice might be, say you're comfortable waking up at 7 a.m., okay? So that's your comfort zone. Try 6.50. 5 a.m. might be too much, it's too far away, you've not respected your boundaries. But 6.50, that's possible, you just bought yourself 10 precious minutes. Now, let's use them wisely. That, that's exploring the comfort zone. Another one is, you know, maybe you love taking warm showers. Cool, you know? Just switch it to the cold for five seconds and just hang out with that discomfort. And see how that, you know, and sort of hold the presence. Maybe 15 seconds, 20 seconds, you can play with that. So keep exploring in curiosity and in innocence, you know? What is this thing that disturbs me? Meditation, if it's difficult, try five minutes. Sit still and see what happens. Okay, cool. Now try 10 minutes. So that's the way, you know, if you don't like to move so much, okay, that's cool. Try 10 burpees, give it a go, see what happens. Just start somewhere and just keep exploring, exploring, and that's where mastery is. Masters are just people who have explored their boundaries and become comfortable with what anybody else would call uncomfortable. So, uh, and to your point, there is an inner Tahiti, you know, there is a place of pure presence, and that's the beauty of the comfort zone. In the boundary of the comfort zone where you're hanging out, it's pure presence. It's pure consciousness. You're fully there. You're fully alive. And here's the thing. Pure presence feels really good. You know, so that's the inner Tahiti, to be totally present. Um, and that's why games like extreme sports and some computer games and even golf, they're so addictive because presence is addictive. You have to be very present with these things. 
Absolutely. I mean, I've seen in my own life that the, the comfort zone is something that can essentially ruin your whole life mm. and really not enable you to tap into your potential. Yeah. I think, you know, our bodies are wired for survival. And I think the path of least resistance moving towards the middle of that mm. comfort zone mm. is, is natural in mm. one way, mm. right? Because if you're comfortable, then you're safe. If you're safe, you see the next day. But the thing is, you might see the next day, but you might not be fulfilled in mm. your life. Mm. So one part of you might be comfortable, but another part of you, the spiritual part of you, the part of you that wants to live and grow, mm. that's the part that starts to die on the inside. Yes, that's, that's subtle. And also at the very gross level, as you go towards the center, you lose your faculties. You know, and this is a very severe thing. Like, you know, the, the smartphones and things like that, they have made life comfortable. But we've lost the ability to remember even phone numbers, for example, you know? We had that ability growing up, at least people at my age, you know? But after a while, because it becomes so easy, or to do simple arithmetic in your mind, we were able to do that as children. We're losing that ability. Uh, em emotionally as well, you know? You, you become isolated in this one, you know, virtual reality thing, but the, the ability to communicate, the ability to really speak in a, in a way that's authentic and connect empathetically, the humanness, we lose those abilities because getting too comfortable with things. So uh, to the global aspect as well, I've been privileged to speak at the, the UN Climate Change Conference a couple of years ago, and this is, was version number 22. You know, there's 22 years, nothing much has happened. You know? And you see the people who are making decisions with respect, they're too comfortable. The change becomes too uncomfortable. And I think it's fair to say that we can't go on like this. It has been very clearly documented. You know? if, for example, if mammals become extinct, you know, which seems to be the case, the delicate balance of the ecosystem goes haywire, we're going to get uncomfortable. If the climate change really becomes exponential and uncontrollable in about 12 years or even seven years, we're going to get uncomfortable. You know? If uh, you know, the, the pollution in the planet is, becomes exponential as it is, we're going to get uncomfortable. So it's because it's very important for us to, to embrace our zone of comfort, even for a very practical reason. But also, here's the thing about having a bigger and bigger comfort zone. As we become comfortable more and more, a beautiful thing starts to happen is that we become more fearless. Because nothing bothers you so much, because you're more comfortable. And a lot of the, of the disease and mess in society is because we've become very fearful. Things outside the comfort zone become fearful. People who look different, talk different, think different, act different, speak different, suddenly they become dangerous. You know, to hold space for somebody who doesn't agree with you becomes difficult. Uh, to move in a way you're not accustomed to becomes difficult. So we are in a comfort crisis right now. Too much comfort, I and mean, we've lost our facilities. Even our grandfathers, great-grandfathers, they had to walk, they had to till the soil, they had to climb, they had to use their bodies, they had faculty, they had intelligence in their body. We're losing all of that. Uh, and, uh, and the only way out, luckily there is a way out, is to just hang out, hang out in the boundaries of the comfort zone. Just keep hanging out there. I'm not saying don't go to the center now and again, totally cool, have fun, enjoy yourself. Life is about having fun and relaxing and so on. Just don't live there, you know? Living there uh, has a quicksand effect. You get sucked into it and you get st stuck in your own comfort. 100%. I mean, I, I try and live on the edges of that. I'm always mm -hmm. trying to push and expand myself, but I've had moments in my life where I've, parts of me, 
in different domains have you know been drawn towards the middle and uh while at first glance it seems to be a good thing never ends up being a good thing mm. but the funny thing with life is speaking about the comfort zone and these boundaries life seems to want to push us out of our comfort zone there's oh, always a yeah. curveball going on mm -hmm. i remember i heard somewhere that you're either in a crisis getting out of a crisis or going into a crisis <laughs> and i think this is almost the innate intelligence of life saying hey listen the comfort zone is not where you're supposed to be you're supposed to be challenged and it's a reminder to us and i think uh, as tragic as everything is going on around us with the environment and all of the challenges uh, you know, politically and, and socially, whatnot. I mean, all of these are pushing us out of our comfort zone to, mm -hmm. you know, help us uh, find solutions and tap into our creativity. So I always think, while at first glance it seems like chaos, that it actually might be a great gift if we choose to tap into that energy and actually connect to it versus just let it kind of, mm. like a tidal wave, take us over. You know, I think yeah. it's an opportunity. Mm. What do you Absolutely. think? Well, I mentioned there's a formal practice of meditation, yoga, or you know, if you don't eat any fruits and vegetables, eat one carrot, have one banana, you know, the, the, that's the formal practice. And then there's informal practice, which is life, which you're pointing to, you know, because life is going to give us plenty of opportunities to practice, you know, developing our comfort zone. So what was once uncomfortable and unpleasant and you want to avoid it suddenly becomes an opportunity. Okay, cool. Can I hold my presence with even this, you know? Now I have three children. <laughs> They're not always behaving the way I expect them to. Can I hold my space with that? Uh, it becomes an opportunity to practice. Getting cut off in traffic. Okay, cool. You know, do I need to lose my cool or can I, can I hold the space? So things that were previously jamming us up, now suddenly we get to Tai Chi it and use that as an opportunity to broaden the comfort zone. So again, a peculiar thing starts to happen. Nothing bothers you because everything now becomes an opportunity to step into that unknown. Who am I in that space? You know, what's arising inside me? And uh, to the point where you can almost see that when somebody has a huge comfort zone and they are not bothered by anything, there's no horse in the race, nothing to sell, promote or defend, nothing like that. This is what I would call a mystic. You know, a mystic in all traditions and cultures is somebody who just can hold the presence no matter what's arising uh, because they're comfortable. So, so this is the practice. You, you, you embrace the uncertainty with a lot of respect, with a lot of kindness, gently, gently expand, 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 uh, until you're comfortable more and more. And, and I often make the joke that uh, my job essentially is to make comfortable people uncomfortable and uncomfortable people comfortable, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, uh, so, that's, so that's the process, you know? Um, yeah. So it really starts with you know, having that little bit of awareness through being dissatisfied by your current situation. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, mm. in order to begin to shift, mm. you have to begin to shift, which comes from some type of awareness saying, hey, the way things are now, I'm not a fan of that. I want to expand myself. You first have to come from that energy, correct? To be able to, you know, yeah. wake up 10 minutes earlier or mm -hmm. eat a carrot a day. I mean, to, to get that process going of those micro changes of expanding your, mm -hmm. your boundaries, so to speak, it, it has to come from an intention which is preceded by awareness. That very, you have to very wake valid up. point. Very well said, Miles. Very well said. If you look at the Yoga Sutras, which is like the definitive text on, on, on uh, Raja Yoga, which is a branch of yoga, the first sentence is, 
and thus begins the understanding of yoga. And, and thus implies as a prerequisite, you know, there, there is a, a, a way to get in. And that prerequisite, I, I sense, is this innocence, this curiosity, you know, this willingness to explore. That has to be there. Not explore just intellectually, explore experientially. So I could sit and be very comfortable and explore things intellectually, and that's comfortable. But when I'm actually going into it and experientially, now, you know, I will understand deeper. So if I stay at the level of just understanding things, it's good. I'm being informed. That's a good thing, you know. And if I sit and, and, and intellectualize and come up with ideas and concepts, it's good. I'm discerning. I'm using my ability to understand better and better and better. But if I do not take all that stuff and put it into experiential understanding, you know, then there's, it's, we're still in that comfort zone. We're still in the middle. We're not actually growing. <laughs> you know, we just think we're growing. Because here's the thing. In the boundary of the comfort zone, you can't fool nature. You can sit in the middle of the circle and say, I'm pleasant, I'm comfortable, I'm fine. But as soon as you go to the boundaries, then you really know, are you really holding presence? There's no way to fake presence in, in the boundaries. You have to be really present. You can't just think I'm being present. So how does someone get to a, a place where they, they can connect to that? Because, you know, so many people are on the hamster wheel, day mm. in, day out, same thing every day, same routine. Mm. And eventually we hit a little bit of a wall where we consciously realize a little bit that we want change. Like, I don't like the way my life is going or my relationship or my finances or whatever. So I think we inevitably get to that point. Mm. But then when it comes to making the change, making yeah. the shift, mm. you know, when you, you have a good intention, but now you are trying to figure out what do I do? Mm. You know, where, where I know you mentioned getting up 10 minutes earlier doing the carrot, but how does someone get to that place to know what direction to head in with their life and, and mm. make those kind of decisions? The, the two words I find fundamental are innocence and curiosity, you know? Curiosity, you have to be willing to say, maybe there's another way. Maybe I, maybe I can learn something here. If your glass is full, you know, and there's nothing coming in, I suspect, you know, your viewers and listeners are not in that place. But if you're in a place where, hey, this is cool, I'm just going to show up and I'm going to go, you know, I'm comfortable, I don't need to worry about all this stuff, then there's no way in. But if there's some curiosity, can I live my life more skillfully? Is there more to life than the way I'm living it? You know, just that doesn't mean that you're in a crisis, but just is there a next level here? And once there's a curiosity, then there's an openness just to listen to us speaking. I'm suspecting there's an openness, you know, to understanding. That's the entry point. That, okay. And once you understand that, there are so many tools and techniques out there around the world. Whatever resonates with you, what is that first step? Is it five minutes brisk walking? Can I commit to five minutes brisk walking in 24 hours? You know, or, or, or taking five deep breaths. If you can breathe, you know, <laughs> that's the only prerequisite. You can start with five deep breaths. And if you like it, go on, keep going. Take six deep breaths, seven deep breaths. At least you started the process of good and getting better, getting better, getting better. So let me ask you something about that, because the mantra of our culture is more is better. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I come from the world of health and fitness. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm someone who's lost 120 pounds. Mm -hmm. Most people, when they see my before picture, are sure that it's Photoshopped. Uh, and then I proceed to show them other photos from that evening of me at different angles where, you know, it wasn't Photoshopped. I used to weigh 120 pounds more. And um, for me, when I was in that state, uh, being overweight, it was 
hard for me to actually make the shift. I needed something to kind of wake me up. For me, it happened to be that photo, mm. seeing myself being 120 pounds overweight, people telling me, you're overweight, you should lose weight. It didn't resonate with me. It didn't connect with me. But the photo is, is something mm. that connected with me. Mm. And, um, you know, a lot of people, they, they have that moment where they, they have that little instance where they say, okay, I want to change. I want to do something different. And, you know, they want to do those micro steps. But then because the mantra of the culture is more is better, people say, what's the point of five deep breaths or one carrot a day or I'm going to drink half a glass of water? So people almost devalue these micro steps and they're mm -hmm. thinking bigger, you know, New Year's resolutions. I'm going to change X, Y, Z. I'm going to go on a diet. I'm going to do these big things. Mm -hmm. And it seems like we're, we gravitate towards doing big things, mm -hmm. but they don't work. Mm -hmm. But the micro steps, which mm -hmm. I've seen in my own life, help me change and help other people change. Even though those seem to be the gateway into going to where you want to go, people don't always gravitate towards that. Why do you think that is? Uh, here, I'd like to distinguish between the word serious and sincere, you know? Serious has this heavy morality, morality to it, you know? Oh, I shouldn't be doing this, I should be doing this, I should be doing this. It's all, in, it's all in the head, you know? I should be running 50 kilometers, I should be... Just be sincere. Just be sincere. You don't need any drama, you don't need any heaviness. Just, can I be a little bit better? And sincerity has a, has a humble quality to it. You don't have to be a rock star, you don't have to compare yourself to anybody else. Just in, in, in that sincerity, there's a, there's, a, there's a genuine curiosity to become the next version, just a little bit better. Um, and all the values and micro steps. You know, LeBron James wasn't born, you know, you know, she shouldn't be born, or Steph Curry, <laughs> or you know, whoever else, or Tiger Woods, or Itzhak Perlman, Yo-Yo Ma. They weren't born that way. You know, they had to develop their ability, little by little, little by little. That's the path to mastery, no matter what the mastery is. You progress, progress, progress. And then when you look back, you go, wow, I did all that, you know? But it, it, it's an action. Nobody can do it for you. And no book of philosophy or, or crying or praying is going to do it. You're going to have to do the effort, which is why I love people who embody uh, the action like you do. You know, it, 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 it's an action. What inspires you? It could be a picture, it could be some sacred geometry of life that suddenly makes you realize this is nonsense, you know, my life is falling apart. I'm, I, I, I know people who are like, you know, if you take a picture, their life is the Hollywood dream, but they felt fake, they felt phony inside, you know, they felt vulnerable, they felt they couldn't express themselves, and inside them something cracked. And that's the prerequisite. Inside you, something has to say, hey, this can't go on anymore. And and then curious enough to explore, you know, what inspires me. See, I'm always inspired by people. Um, in fact, I tell my, you know, I have this mantra, I collect cool people, you know, <laughs> people like yourself, you know, who really inspire me. Because that's how I get inspired. So I invite people to look around their environment and go, who inspires me in my environment? You know, that, that, I love the way she does this. I love the way he's doing this. L let me see what's there, you know? So that curiosity, that innocence, it's very humble, it's very beautiful, but from that, you go further and further and further because you love it, not because you have to, not because it's heavy, you know, intellectual, right. serious. It's joyful. Being healthy is so joyful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we're all so much caught up in our head mm -hmm. versus being in our heart mm. and, and connecting to kind of who we feel we need to be versus who we think mm. we should be. 
you know, making the distinction between the two. But you said something before that I thought was super important regarding the environment, mm. which really resonates with me. You know, there's an expression, show me your friends, I'll mm. show you your future. Mm. And I don't think we realize how much our environment actually impacts and influences us. Absolutely. Um, from inanimate objects, mm. you know, if you're trying to lose weight and you have a whole bunch of uh, non-serving foods in your pantry, in your fridge, I mean, you can lose weight being surrounded by those things, but your journey is going to be much more challenging. Mm. Um, if you're trying to lose weight and people around you also have weight to lose and they're not empowering you and giving you positive energy, you can lose weight, mm. but it's going to be very hard very to do. Hard. And uh, I think what you said regarding the environment and who inspires you and who's around you mm. is such a, such a powerful thing that I think is not even that hard to change, you know, mm -hmm. the people around you and it doesn't have to be physical people. It could be books. Mm -hmm. It could be videos on YouTube, Absolutely, everything, but feeding the mind positivity mm -hmm. versus being fed, you know, so much of the nonsense we see in the news, mm -hmm. uh, the, the negativity of the world. I mean, there's negativity everywhere. Mm -hmm. Someone, you know, I was, I was listening to a video the other day and they were saying, you know, you can go into the forest and you can isolate a particular moment. Perhaps there's one animal killing another animal and you kind of box that and you see that as a moment. But in this neck of the woods, you know, a bird is giving birth. Mm -hmm. All of it's happening simultaneously, mm -hmm. but what are you focusing on? Mm -hmm. But our mind always goes towards the negativity yeah. and we're just, I feel not surrounded always by good people, uh, positive people, positive things, but we have those resources there, all mm -hmm. these books and podcasts and For it's sure. really unreal. It's never been this easy to be inspired. And people often ask me this question, you know, my environment's so heavy, I have toxic people, you know, what should I do? And the, the principle here is not to move away from anything, it's to move towards something. Mm. Just move towards things. Don't worry about, you know, uh, you know the, uh, the heavy, just move towards inspiring people. And all this stuff will just die of natural atrophy, you know? So it's more about moving towards, like a plant moving towards the sun. It's not moving away from the shadow. I love it. This sort of a thing, you know? This mindset. Don't move away from a bad relationship, move towards a positive one. Don't move away from bad health, move towards thriving. It's that mindset that allows you to grow. Yeah, so basically focus on what you want versus what you don't you got want. It. Absolutely. You know, put the energy, you gotta put your energy, your energy is finite, you gotta put it into a basket. Mm. You can focus on what you don't want. I think it's important to know what you don't want, mm. but not to live and dwell there. But then, like you said, to put your energy on, you know, moving towards the sun if you're that vine or, or moving down that trajectory towards what you want to create versus what you don't want to have. And I, I feel though that that's the trap for so many people. We focus so much on what we don't want that we just live in that energy constantly and consistently. And I, I really feel that the quality of your life is the sum of your emotions. Mm -hmm. So if you're always in you know, this negative reality, that's your world. But mm -hmm. that there's this opportunity to just shift your attention and shift your awareness in a new direction mm -hmm. to be able to instantaneously in the moment, even if things haven't changed physically, start living a better and more positive life at that point. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I think that we've just lost touch with some of the tools we innately have, mm -hmm. you know, understanding really how powerful our minds are and that our external reality is a reflection mm -hmm. of our internal reality versus us always being in this uh, to me level of consciousness where life happens to me and I'm a victim and there's nothing I can do and he said this and she said that and life's not the way I want. I mean, that, that becomes this glue that holds us together. I mean, everyone gets around the water cooler, right? Mm -hmm. And what, uh, what, you know, misery loves company. So mm -hmm. everybody goes there, but mm -hmm. you know, I, we need that inspiration. I think that's what's so great about people like yourself who are, mm -hmm. you know, 
helping people connect to themselves and helping people connect to that part of themselves that, that wants to grow and wants to evolve. Because I think when we're left to our own devices as a whole, as a society, mm. we gravitate towards the middle of mm -hmm. that comfort zone. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you're pointing to something very beautiful. It would be my definition of free will. You have an option to focus you know, on the heavy, negative, what you don't want, or the option to focus on the stuff that inspires you, lightness, uplifting, and what you do want. What kind of house do you want to live in? What kind of a city do you want to live in? What kind of a world do you want to live in? You know, focus on that. So uh, it's, everything else that's not working so great, it's good. It informs you. It gives you an idea of what's going on. But don't live there. To your point, once you understand you know, what the disease is, focus on the cure. Focus on the solution. So, uh, so, so, so this is what I would call the best understanding I have of free will. You know, you have a choice there. Where are you focusing on? And there's a very simple law where attention goes, energy flows. If I bring all my attention to seeing right now, there'll be just seeing. Attention to hearing, there'll be just hearing. So if, my, if I bring my attention to all that is uplifting, positive, that's what I'll have in my life. That's what I'll experience. And fundamentally, life is about experiences. So, so that would be something very important. And the other thing as well that, that ties into this, another very important law of nature, is the understanding that whatever we, we practice, we end up becoming better and better at. Mm -hmm. You know, as I mentioned, you know, top-level athletes or musicians or orators, they practice, practice, become better and better and better. So then the question we have to ask ourselves is, what am I practicing? Am I practicing focusing on a negative? Because I'm going to get really good at that. Am I practicing being angry and frustrated and anxious and depressed? If I keep doing that year after year, decade after decade, you know what, you know, I'll become an expert. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Everybody else is having a good time, but I have become an expert in finding something to complain about, something to be scared about, because that's what I've been practicing. If I practice being in the center of that circle all the time, you know, I've become really good at that center and really bad at everything else. So this notion, what am I practicing every day, externally and internally? Am I practicing gratitude i'm going to get really good at that you know all it's a complete fiasco but i found some reason to be grateful even if it's just my breath i found something to be grateful for so so this is a question i i carry with me you know very closely what am i practicing mm -hmm. what do i want to get really good at because i know whatever i'm practicing i'm going to get good at that yeah i think that um people don't realize the, the impact of their thoughts and daily actions. It's like this, this small kind of faucet dripping every day, but eventually mm -hmm. the sink fills with water, yeah. but it can either fill with negativity or positivity. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, a lot of people have just become numb to reality and have forgotten who they are and what our potential is. And we see mm -hmm. superstar athletes mm -hmm. and we see amazing people who've changed the world like Nelson Mandela and all these people we put on a pedestal mm. but uh, like we were chatting about before before mm. we started talking here in this interview you know what we would consider extraordinary you really think is ordinary we've just mm. forgotten who we are mm. maybe talk a little bit about that yes yeah, so you know from the center of that comfort zone anything outside might seem extraordinary you know at, uh, like superhuman kind of stuff it's just that we have not explored ourselves enough you know, it's, I heard recently that most people can only use about 7% of their cell phone. You know, the cell phone, the, the smartphone has so much capability, 
but most people only use about 7%, just email, Facebook, Messenger, something like that, but you can do so much more. We probably use only about 1% of our human capability. This human system that we have is so intricate, still the best engineered device ever created, you know? The precious human birth, we barely explore it. What a tragic waste of this beautiful uh, mechanism that we have. So to be at least curious, what is the capability here? And then we expand, expand, expand the comfort zone. So those things that seem paranormal and really like, how did he or she do that? It's not paranormal. They've just explored their comfort zone to a point when that becomes ordinary and normal. And if a human being can do it, it's in our human capability. Right. You know, so it's just have you tapped into that mechanism enough to discover it for yourself. Because if you haven't, then it'll seem extraordinary. But as you keep growing the comfort zone, suddenly you can realize, oh, I see how he did that, or I see how she did that. Because there's an understanding of knowing that as it gets to that level, that can become ordinary. You know, when you said that, something that popped into my head right away. You know, when it comes to stepping out of your comfort zone, something that's inevitable that mm -hmm. lurks on the outer parts of the comfort zone is failure. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. That if you're going to go outside of the territory, you're going to fail. And it's interesting how human beings just have this inherent fear of failure, mm -hmm. which, you know, starts, you can, we can talk about where that starts and where that comes from, but you know, what, what jumps into my head immediately is, you know, in the schooling system at least, mm -hmm. it's not about making mistakes, it's about getting it right, and if you make mistakes, that's not good, and you're looking for perfection, and 100% is the best grade, and it's kind of ingrained in us not to fail, not to make mistakes, mm -hmm. which becomes a part of us almost not venturing out of this comfort zone, not tapping into our potential, and not expanding to who we're really capable of. But I think that fear is probably at the root of that. You know, is that something that you agree with or what are your thoughts on that? You know, to your point, I have a 23-year-old baby at home, you know, and she's not afraid of falling and go, pop, you know. And we all know that at that age, they learn the fastest, they're the most creative, you know, a brand new baby. And as they grow, they develop ability so fast. My children learn languages like so fast, in like two, three months, they're speaking fluently. Um, and to your point, the, 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 the cultural context that we're all growing up in makes us afraid of failure. So, uh, you know, uh, the grading system in school, you know, you've got to answer the question correctly, you're on top of the pyramid, answer wrong at one of the pyramid. So there's fear of failure. Uh, and the whole system is kind of built around fear. There's reasons for that we can go into later on. The antidote to fear is innocence. That's what babies have. They have innocence. That's why that word innocence is so important. Innocent of this idea of praising and blaming and success and failure and victory and defeat. Just innocent curiosity. The same innocent curiosity we were born with. It's our inherent nature. So when you tap into that, it doesn't feel like you're learning anything. It really feels like remembering, oh yeah, I forgot about that. You know? And it's very playful. It's, 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 it's a joyous state. We were born to be in a joyous state. We were born that way. And... Uh, and due to conditioning, we develop these layers of fears. Um, I think most people after a certain age realize that, eh, you know, something is off here. And that's when, um, you know, we start to move away from that center of the comfort zone, either through a crisis or just through one's own self-examined life. You know, Wayne Dyer once said that we're all born geniuses and then life degeniuses us. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how we're born in that innocent state of curiosity, which seems to be 
the state that we should be gravitating towards to be able to kind of evolve ourselves and evolve our consciousness. But life has this interesting way of putting all these different layers of an onion on top of us and kind of masking ourselves multidimensionally and almost forgetting who we are and what we're capable of. And I would think that a lot of that programming comes from the people closest to us, you know, between the ages of zero and seven when we're absorbing reality like a sponge and trying to make uh, sense of things. Mm. And sometimes, you know, depending on your background and where you're coming from and who's influencing you, you're kind of locked into this certain core framework of reality that you then have to, like almost like ball and chains around your ankles, mm. that you, you know, life is this marathon, this journey. And we all have our own unique set of ball and chains. Some people it's heavier than others, some people it's lighter than others, but nobody seems to be running the race at, at full speed. Mm. So life, I, I think, comes down to A, becoming aware that there's these ball and chains around your ankle. Beliefs, ideas, habits, patterns, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Exactly, and mm. then B, saying, you know, do I want this around my, my ankles? And uh, what do I actually want in my life? Mm. And break free of that. But I wanted you to talk a little bit about, you know, this innocence that we're born with mm. and how we lose it. Okay. Do we have time for a story? Absolutely. Like, love uh, stories. Okay, lovely. So this story I find really does justice to this, this notion. Uh, it's a story that took place in a little village in Thailand. And uh, this village had a prized possession, this massive, magnificent, golden Buddha statue. And uh, it, was, it was their most precious thing. This was many, many centuries ago. So uh, one day the villagers found out that a, a foreign army was attacking their land and they were soon coming to the village. And immediately they, they got afraid that, hey, they're, they're going to destroy the statue. You know, and there's no way we can take it with us. What can we do? So one villager had a brilliant idea of covering up the statue with mud. It's a great idea. So they all got together, patched the statue up with mud, chiseled it perfectly, and ran out of the village. Sure enough, when the army came, they saw this mud statue, they let it go, they pillaged what they could. A few days later, they also left. Now the village was laid bare for decades, and a whole new settlement comes into the village. Now this new settlement has no idea about the statue. So they're living like that for decades after decades, and one afternoon, a young monk was meditating in front of the mud statue, in the heat of the burning sun. And as he glimpsed at the statue, he saw something glittering in the corner of the statue. And he became curious, hey, what is this? He goes up to the statue, and scratches it, and he sees the gold underneath. He runs to the monastery and tells all the senior monks, gold, the statue is made of gold. And all the senior monks come and they chisel away the mud and return the statue to its original golden nature. So the metaphor here is that we're all born with that original golden Buddha nature, the innocence, the curiosity, the presence. You know, we're born that way. But due to fears, either perceived or otherwise, we cover up this golden nature with the mud of personalities and fears and beliefs and ideas and philosophies and dogmas and opinions. It becomes very, very thick. We encrust ourselves in all of this. And then, either through, again, the... the fate, serendipity, or the sheer heat of life, the mud starts to crack, and we get a glimpse of another possibility. And that's when all the wisdom traditions, all of them, you know, come and chisel away the mud and return us to our original golden nature, the way we were. Mm. Yeah. It's a beautiful story, it's a very powerful metaphor. Mm. It really resonates with me. Um, you know, as someone myself who's gone through many things in his life, it's, 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 
it's all about connecting to kind of who we are in our original state. And it's funny how we just get these layers and these masks that develop, trying to fit in, trying to please other people, mm. trying to uh, adapt to the environment to essentially survive, mm. but not thrive. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's a very good point. Generally, we're setting the bar so low, so embarrassingly low. We're setting the bar at surviving comfortably. That's not what we're designed for. We're designed to thrive, you know? This utopic optimum uh, condition of thrive doesn't matter if you reach there, but the willingness to go there, that's what makes us come alive. That's a life worth living. If we're just surviving comfortably, you know, who cares? You know, uh, so it, it's a waste of this precious human birth. So to, to really look at that, you know, that joyful possibility, what does it look like for me to thrive? What would that feel like? You know, and sort of be inspired by that. And then you start to get glimpses of people who are thriving in their various ways. And as you said, that's where the momentum towards thriving starts. And doing little things, very, very little steps. The magic is in little steps. That's something that, uh, that is so, so important. Just start somewhere. Whatever resonates with you, start somewhere and then follow it everywhere. And so how does someone really get from out of this mindset of kind of fear and scarcity which I think is really the underpinning of mm. why people don't do things and step more, going back to the true nature and discovering your potential and stepping outside of the comfort zone, mm. tapping more into a mindset of love and abundance. Because mm. there's 101 reasons mm. to be afraid if you want to be afraid mm. and to choose to believe that you live in a world of scarcity. But how does someone snap out of that and become aware and tap into kind of that love and abundance? that I think really is the gateway to walking down that path of a better potential future. Mm. The mud has to crack. You know, if you're just decorating the mud, putting makeup on the mud, you know, wearing, putting nice clothes <laughs> in the mud, if that's what you're doing, you're not ready yet. The mud has to crack. The innocence has to be, some, some glimpse has to be there. There's another possibility. Nobody can give that to you. It's just going to happen. Like you looking at a picture, you know, it just happened. The mud just cracked, you know? So uh, you can set the scene for the mud cracking. You know, there's possibilities of doing that. More conducive for that, going to retreats, trying something outside your comfort zone, mm -hmm. going to a fitness center, going to a yoga class, going to, you know, going to a dance class, whatever it is for you that puts you outside your comfort zone. Because that's when you start to discover who you really are. It can never happen inside the comfort zone. So a willingness to step out of it you know, uh, is a prerequisite. Yeah, it's, 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 I agree with you 100%. It's just interesting how the paradigm has been built up to uh, gravitate towards the comfort zone. Mm. And it, it's almost like this, this ironic state of, of affairs that the thing that we don't want, i.e. everything outside of the comfort zone, is the thing that we need mm. to actually evolve and to thrive. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's just a very paradoxical uh, in yeah. nature. There are some clues. There are some clues to know. It's a game I like to play. Is uh, when I look at people, adults, I try to see how quickly can I see the child in their face. You know, <laughs> that you know that a child like I see them as a two-year-old or a four-year-old. The sooner I can do that, the more I can see the mud is actually very thin. Mm. But if I have to really scrutinize somebody's face to see that child, you know, the mud is super thick. You know. Uh, some other clues as well, very respectfully and humbly and objectively, you have to ask yourself, the people around me, do they all look like me, speak like me, think like me, act like me, believe like me? If they do, you're probably stuck in the mud. 
you know? So invite in different opinions and ideas. Travel if you need to travel. My, my physical facility, do I have full range of movement or am I stuck? If you're stuck, then you're probably in the comfort zone. So just do one thing different, something different. You know, get outside of that, that kind of ingrained track of the same habits and rituals that we do on a daily basis. Mm. There was this book I once read. I think it was called Do One Thing Different. Mm. And I remember having this notion, yes, even yes. if you walk one way to work, if you walk a different way to work, just mm. breaking some kind of neurological pattern in your brain and kind of snapping yourself out of the trance mm. and having the potential to be open to kind of doing new things. Yeah. And it, it's so hard. I mean, look... Losing weight is not an easy thing. This is what I deal with every day. People are coming into my studio here to uh, try and get in shape, try and change their life. And most people have tried it on their own, good intentions, but, but have failed mm. to be able to do it and have not been able to uh, stay the course and have let all the little setbacks and little hiccups and roadblocks and challenges and all these things push them from continuing in a good way. Right? Mm. As soon as something goes wrong, as life always tends to do, um, just giving up, yeah. not having that resilience. And I think being in that small comfort zone, you, you don't train the muscle of resilience because mm -hmm. you're not out there you know, falling on your face and getting up. Whereas you, know, you said you have a 23-month-old at home and they're falling around and then they're just kind of enjoying the journey or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But uh, this, this idea that society really has shaped this paradigm mm -hmm. that failure is bad, that comfort is good. You mm. see it in social media everywhere, mm. which makes things, in my opinion, uh, worse. Mm. Um, you know, you see the end product of a lot of journeys on social media, but you don't see, going back to bring things full circle, the trajectory of mastery. Yeah. All the little things done well, day in, day out. Mm. So I don't think people have a notion that there are these micro steps that summate and add up exponentially over time. You know, we just see the final outcome and Before think, and after picture. Right. Like magic. <laughs> no magic. Exactly. And oh. then you go to try it and in a couple of weeks you don't, uh, you don't look like that person or you haven't achieved the net result and you just, you just give up right away. Uh, but there's no, there's no context there. Actually, one thing I just wanted to say quickly. I remember, uh, do you know the show Shark Tank? Mm -hmm. I, I love the show. Mm -hmm. I, I love entrepreneurship. Uh, I find it's the most interesting pursuit of the soul because you're basically a, a full-on creator. That's what you are. But what's interesting is when I watched the show for the first time, what I thought was really profound was when the sharks, these successful people, started talking about their journeys uh, mm -hmm. of suffering and failure, sleeping in their cars, not having enough money to make payroll, um, being stressed out of their mind, uh, living at their office under their desk. And that was really, you know, in the first season ever of Shark Tank, I don't know when that was. It must have been 10 years ago, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, can't remember. I really had this shift where I realized, whoa, there's this, there's this other reality that we're not seeing, that mm. people aren't talking about. Everybody's talking about their success and these great things and great results, but no one's talking about the road and the journey, which mm. is what really builds you up. So when I saw that and, and I heard about all these failures and challenges, it really opened my eyes up and it made me realize, okay, if you want to get to this point B that all of us want to get to, whether it's in our relationships, finances, career, or whatever, there, there's a road of, of some suffering along the way. Yeah, this is called in yoga tapas, you know, that, uh, that, that, that discipline to keep going through. You know, and, and it's overwhelming, I respect that. You know, if you have to lose like 50, 60 pounds, and you think about it, 50, 60 pounds to here, that's a far away, you know? I'm reminded of this time when I had the privilege to hike the Himalayas. 
So we were in a, in a little village and I saw the mountain, the snow-tipped mountain. Like, wow, that's so far away. It's overwhelming. It's so far away. But what's not so far away? Taking a deep breath is not so far away. Just one deep breath. Taking one step is not so far away. And one breath, one step, one breath. Before you know it, you're, you're on your way there, you know? So, yes, it, it might seem overwhelming from where you are to where you want to be. But the next step is not overwhelming. One deep mindful breath is not overwhelming, you know? If that's the starting point, bravo. Start with that, you know? I, and I work, I work with people with severe conditions, uh, physical and mental. I myself, as you might know, not to dwell on it, was completely paralyzed a few years ago. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, I had this very rare medical condition called Guillain-Barré syndrome. And, uh, and for a while, I became like a plank of wood. Nothing was working. Uh, I had to tape over my eyes because I couldn't blink. Uh, I could barely breathe. So, wow. uh, you know, I, I relate to that. I relate to being absolutely, utterly helpless. And I remember thinking to myself, oh yeah, I'm still breathing. Cool. You know? I have something to be grateful for. So I tried to breathe a little bit better. And suddenly my little finger started to move. I'm like, cool, my little finger's moving. You know, let's keep moving that. The next finger starts to move. So focus on that 0.1% that's working. It'll soon become 0.5%, and soon 1%, then 5%, 10, 15, 20, 60. That's how you get back. Start simple. Focus on what is working for you. Are you breathing right now? Fantastic. That's working for you. Take a deep breath. 100%. My mantra over the years has become less is more. Mm. And uh, it's interesting in quantum physics, the deeper they go, the, you know, the deeper levels, the more power and potential energy there is. So it seems like in the, in the smaller the step or in the smaller the thing, the mm. more potential there is for greatness. And I think that's really a powerful lesson. That's something mm. I've learned in my life and you've kind of uh, articulated so well. Those little micro steps, but also experiencing and acknowledging them, mm. right? Mm. So if that pinky was moving, but you hadn't connected to the pinky moving, mm. that it wouldn't have had the same kind of effect on you. But oh, yeah. you were present mm. and you were aware with what was going on and you kind of experienced that emotionally and that kind of fueled you and that led to the next finger and the next finger and the next finger. So would you say that most people today are, are really not present even to observe in their own life what's going on and what is presence? To me, um, presence is the only thing that matters, <laughs> you know? It's really, because fundamentally, you just have to be present. Present is just tuning into what's actually happening right now at the level of experience. You know, um, I could be present to the 99.9% .9 that's not working. Or I could be present to 0.1% that is working, you know? So that's free will right there. You know, where, where are you giving your attention to? And the biggest life hack that I've ever come across is, is gratefulness. Mm. And gratefulness is really an emotion. It's an effect. You can't actually practice gratefulness. It's like, just like you can't practice being excited or angry. It's, a, it's an effect. The real practice is noticing generosity. Noticing things that are just given to you, just for you to enjoy. My eyes are working, cool. I have these lights, shapes, and colors to enjoy. My fingers working, awesome. I have that to enjoy. So when we start to focus on things that we just have given to us, you know, it, it just amplifies more and more, 
you know attention goes energy flows energy flows it grows more and more more and more so that's the biggest hack instead of focusing on what's not working for you focus on what is working for you and when you focus on what's working for you that becomes more and more predominant uh, as simple as that so it's about noticing everything that's just given to us for pure enjoyment we so often lose sight of things that are free you know the breath the sun you know and even the food that we eat, it's, it, it took so much for that food to happen. Not just people and money, but nature had to collaborate and co-create that beautiful food. Coming into this body and the food becomes a body, how is that even possible? That's amazing. You know, take yeah. a chance to notice that. <laughs> we, we totally lose perspective and take these things for granted. Mm-hmm. And that's it. If you, if you take a moment to think about your, the human biology mm-hmm. and everything that's taking place right now, like you said, you know, the heart beating, uh, cells are breaking down and rebuilding energy is being produced in the mitochondria. I mean, there's a whole ecosystem taking place unconsciously. Given to you, just given to you. Right. You're not doing that, it's happening to you. You're not beating your heart, it's beating for you, you know? That's a gift. And we take it for granted, we, 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 we forget about that. And I think that you're 100% right. I think that gratitude is such a powerful emotional state. And I think they say we have 70,000 or so thoughts a day on average Mm -hmm. and the majority of them if not all of them are negative Mm -hmm. Uh, and like you said um, uh, energy flows where focus really goes Mm -hmm. and I think that if we're perpetually having these negative thoughts and we're not in this state of gratitude I mean your life is just a reflection of your thoughts Mm -hmm. but gratitude and I've seen that in my own life as well taking a step back and having perspective has been uh, tremendous for me. Anytime I'm going through any challenges, if I catch myself in the moment, Mm. disassociate from it, and come from a perspective of gratitude, the challenge disappears, essentially. Mm -hmm. Because then you realize that for so many of us, I mean, there are first world problems, Mm -hmm. champagne problems. These things that we call problems are just illusions of the mind that we, uh, we choose to label as a problem Mm. but are really opportunities and i've seen that as i've been building my business over 10 years now i mean challenges are par for the course i mean i'm surprised when a week goes by and there's not a challenge of some kind although i've shifted my vocabulary it was Mm. problems and headaches before Mm. now there's just challenges and uh, learning opportunities and growth opportunities Mm. but uh that's what they are and you know within that paradigm that we're trapped in this notion of being present um, being grateful, seeing problems as challenges and growth opportunities, uh, stepping outside of the comfort zone uh, into this uncharted and unknown territory, but having faith that you're a resilient human being and that you can evolve and, and handle whatever is within those shadows that you haven't yet explored. Mm. That's really what I feel uh, has helped me and served me so much as I've changed in my life. And, and I really feel like what you're talking about right now. And it's, you know, the world is in a state of affairs where we need to raise our consciousness. Very and, good. And I'm happy you mentioned of... that because this is not just a feel-good thing. It's not something uh, light and airy-fairy. There's a mechanics behind it. There's a mechanics to gratefulness. When you're grateful for something, first of all, you're by definition present. You have to notice it first. And when you're grateful for it, it's not like you want something else, so you, you, you don't want it. You're grateful for it being there. So the mind doesn't jump around so much. When you're grateful, you're noticing generosity. Right away, you appreciate it. When you appreciate something, you revere it, you serve it, you care for it. So then you start to care for things. You know, 
and you reconnect with things that are really, really precious. And what's amazing is that you start to value everything. Everything becomes valuable because you become really good at being grateful. And even the stuff that's jamming up, it's like, oh, that's cool. There's some value there, even if it's just learning, you know, uh, to, to your an opportunity to explore my boundaries of, of presence. So in that f being a master of gratefulness, not only is it good for oneself, it actually creates a resonant effect that helps all of humanity for generations. It has that power. So it's not something to be dismissed lightly. There's a mechanics behind it that's profound. Very well said. You know, right away when you were talking about all those things, what I couldn't help but think about, and I'll explain what I mean by this in a moment, is, is nature and what nature is. And um, there was this photo I saw a couple of weeks ago that really, uh, really inspired me and resonated with me. There were two photos side by side. One had man in the middle and had all types of different symbols of nature, trees, animals, you know, a crab, a shark, different things like that. And then the next photo had the same cycle, but with man within the cycle, mm -hmm. connected into the cycle of nature. And when I saw that photo, and this is what came into my mind now as you were talking about this, I realized that this disconnection from nature that we've had, seeing ourselves separate from nature, that the world revolves around us, really is at the root of all this dysfunction. Because as soon as I guess you see yourself separate from everything, you're no longer connected to it. Mm -hmm. And if you're not connected to it... You objectify it, you want to control it, you're afraid of it, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So gratitude is definitely a harder state to be in when you don't see yourself connected to all these positive things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why for most people, the gratitude muscle is one that is fully uh, atrophied mm -hmm. for, for the most part, other than a couple little instances here and there throughout the year. Someone gives you a gift for, uh, for Christmas or for your birthday and you have this moment of gratitude, but it's not really a, a part of our, our daily lives. Mm -hmm. I, I've been trying to practice gratitude on a daily basis and I, I've noticed a tremendous uh, shift in my perspective reality. So when you said it's a life hack, mm -hmm. it's one of the things I wanted to ask you about today were what are a couple of your tips that people yeah. can, can use? And I think that this gratitude life hack takes a couple of minutes, being present, shifting your focus, and all of a sudden, mm -hmm. reality slows down and you realize that you're a part of a whole mm -hmm. versus just this entity walking around separate from everything. Yes, yeah. So I just want to reiterate something very important. The actual practice is noticing generosity and when you notice that, you feel grateful. So just keep practicing noticing things that you're just enjoying. You know, you're enjoying TV, appreciate that. You're enjoying a pen that's working, you know. It's just noticing generosity is what it is. Um, so that's, that's a big thing. Just taking opportunity to notice things. That you have clean drinking water, wonderful, you know. Many people don't have that. So, uh, so a life hack that I find very important is is to have some say over the morning. Most people, most of the time, have some say in the morning. What happens throughout the day, it could be complete fiasco up and down, not, you don't know. But it is in the morning time, you have some say over that. And from what I've understood and experienced, whenever I see people who are at the next level, they have some sort of ritual in the morning. Mm. So that's a life hack. So ritualize the morning. You have some say over it. Um, if you just wake up in the morning and make your bed, for example, right away you have a sense of accomplishment. Wonderful. You start the morning with a sense of accomplishment. So, 
and you know, as I mentioned, the hack. If you can, if you wake up at seven, you you push the boundary and you make it six fifty. Fantastic! You just won yourself ten minutes. You know, you just you just earned ten minutes in the day. Let's use that wisely. Whatever that means for you. Maybe you're meditating for those ten minutes. Maybe you're uh, you're doing burpees or you know, or going for a walk or doing some yoga. Um, so these are all things that you can do. If you can give yourself 15 minutes, 20 minutes, even better. Um, and to use that morning to explore the boundaries of the comfort zone. You know? So if it's uncomfortable, well, that's why you do it. <laughs> you know? Explore. Your body's stiff, doesn't matter. Get out there and just get on the mat and do your exercise or whatever it is. Just start somewhere. Um, something else I really love to do, which is a new habit when I first heard it, it freaked me out. But now I see the value in it is the cold shower. You know, we get so cozy in a nice warm shower, you come out a little bit soft and lazy, take a cold shower, you, <laughs> you'll be like lit, like 10 cups of coffee, you're good to go. Your whole body's woken up, you know, the endocrine system, hormonal system, circulatory system, everything fully stimulated, you're, you're totally set. So you come alive with that. Maybe it sounds too much for you, fine, try two seconds, <laughs> you know, two seconds of cold water. So, uh, so that kind of stuff, Some, another hack, which I know I think you resonate with, is uh, is the breakfast. You know, I'm a, I'm a big into having a smoothie. Smoothie is a hack. It takes me 10 minutes to prepare the smoothie, serve it to my family, drink it, and clean it. The whole thing is 10 minutes. But I've just put in essential nutrients, minerals, and vitamins into my body. So I've put like rock solid super fuel into this machine. I'm good to go. It's simple. It's not even expensive, you know? So little things like that. Can, can really impact the quality of our life very dramatically. So I think you said some super powerful stuff there. I'm going to just backtrack for a second. Um, so, so far, one of the hacks is gratitude. You mm. talked about, you know, entering this state of recognizing generosity and seeing all these powerful things that you actually have in your life, focusing on the positive. The second thing you talked about was the morning ritual, which I resonate with. And I'm going to ask you in a moment what your morning ritual is. But uh, I, I discovered that many moons ago, and it's transformed my life. And I've watched many interviews and read many books. And it seems like anybody who's, who's thriving and evolving has some type of morning ritual. There's some way to anchor yourself in the morning before the chaos of the day. The, the third thing you talked about was um, uh, doing a smoothie, something in the morning to nourish your body. Um, as someone who had a particular relationship with food, having been 280 pounds before. Uh, what you put in your body determines not only how your body functions, but how your mind functions. Mm -hmm. There's an intimate link between food and mood, food and neurochemistry, food and, like you said, uh, your hormonal profile and your circulation mechanisms. I mean, food is the gateway into this machine functioning in the first place. And, uh, you know, there's different people who some people practice intermittent fasting and that gives them clarity of mind. Some other people need uh, nourishment right away in the morning. You know, at the end of the day, it's, it's whatever works for you. But definitely uh, being present in the morning and serving your body, mind and spirit mm -hmm. with some type of ritual or routine. I'm 100 percent on the same page mm -hmm. with you with those with those hacks, so to speak. So back to what I was saying, uh, AM and morning rituals. Mm -hmm. What's your morning ritual? What do you do? You know, I have three kids, two companies. <laughs> There's a lot going on. Uh, you know, it's, it's not very elaborate. <laughs> you know, I, uh, the first thing is, as I mentioned, wake up, make the bed. 
yeah, uh, if it's at all possible. If my partner is sleeping, then I don't. I make it later on. Then once I brush my, you know, prepare myself, I, I go into my closet. <laughs> I'm a closet meditator. Oh yeah. <laughs> I love, love, love it in the closet. You know, it's a tiny little space. It's very humble. It's barely enough space for me. I put my pillow and I and I sit as pitch dark. I feel like I'm floating through infinite space. Wow. I like in a space capsule. Uh, and I can go very deep, very fast. If I open my eyes, close my eyes, it doesn't matter, it's pitch dark. So, uh, so I, I, I do my morning practice, which really, it, it, it's, if I don't do it, it's like not brushing my teeth, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's that essential. Um, and then beyond that, I gently wake up my body. So I do what I call half sun salutations, then move on to full sun salutations. So three cycles of the sequence of movements is very comprehensive in waking up the body gently. Um, I know where my weak points are. Being a yoga teacher and practicing for so many decades, I know which postures I need to do in my body to release the tension in my body. So I do those particular postures, which are unique to me, you know, to be something else for somebody else. And, uh, and then I do the burpees. The burpees help me wake up my whole body, get the blood flowing, circulation happening. I, I love it. That'll, that'll work, yeah. Yeah, just burpees. Just keep doing burpees, man. You know, that's the whole body's waking up. No drama. And then I've built up a good circulation, maybe a bit of a sweat, I take a cold shower. So uh, I start with normal temperature and then I turn it to cold. And if it's freaking people out, the first five seconds are the worst, <laughs> you know? Once you get used to it, then, you know, it doesn't matter. So by this point, I'm accustomed to it. And now I'm like completely alive. So I've totally filled up my bank account, you know? Because body is like a bank. You know, if there's no money in the bank, where's the money going to come from? Mm -hmm. There's no energy in here. There's no sense of uh, aliveness or, or, or gratitude or, uh, you know, uh, patience and, and self-care. How am I going to give people these things? My bank is empty. So first thing in the morning, you fill up your bank, you know, and you feel, you feel alive, you feel awake, you feel grateful. Uh, then, uh, you know, it's a, I prepared a smoothie and the blender sounds, wakes the family up. <laughs> So uh, the smoothie is ready, and uh, and that's it. That's that's my morning routine. If I have more time, if it's a weekend or something like that, maybe I'll do more elaborate practice. I meditate for longer, so I can move those things around. For me, I I, I love tennis. It's it's been my friend from a uh, young oh, yeah? kid. So I, I I play tennis twice a week. That's my bi-weekly routine. Uh, Seven a.m. to nine a.m. on Wednesdays and Saturdays. So that's how I nourish myself. You know, at a very personal level, tennis is my thing. For somebody else, it might be something else. But to do those things that really make you come alive, uh, I think is a very important part of, of Thrive Hacking. For some people, it's painting. For some people, it's gardening. It's all good, you know? Take time to do that. Schedule that in. Things that are giving you pleasure, put it in your calendar, you know? Because that's what life is about, about, about having good experiences. So uh, if it's healthy and wholesome, you know, schedule that in. So. That's kind of like what my morning routine looks like. Um, and it it's, it's really doesn't take very long. The whole thing I've just expressed, half an hour, 45 minutes stops. That's amazing. You know, the thing I love most about it was that meditating in the closet. Yeah. I'm telling you, I'm going to take that from you. I have a closet right over there. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to go, because you know what? To be in that pitch blackness, as you were describing it, whether your eyes are open or closed, mm -hmm. and, and, and basically disconnect some of your sensory systems from the reality, I, I like that a lot. But, you know... What, what you just described there, that whole flow of different things that you do, 30, 45 minutes, that's it. And like you said, you kind of fill yourself up. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important. I mean, we're always 
giving to our external world, giving to our family, mm. our friends, our spouse, our kids, our job, our boss, all these things. So what are we giving? Exactly. Are we giving frustration? Are we giving anger? Are we giving anxiety? What are we giving? Exactly. Uh -huh. So this notion of uh, cultivating yourself mm -hmm. and filling the glass up so that it overflows and that you can contribute mm -hmm. more and contribute from a deeper and more profound place, mm. I mean, resonates with me totally. And that's one of the reasons why I, I also do a morning routine and, and build myself up in the morning. If you don't schedule it, it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, if you think about it, it's a dream. If, if you schedule it, you invite the possibility of it actually happening. And then finally, when you do it, like Nike says, just do it. Yeah. Uh, then, then it becomes real and it becomes a part of you. And if you did your morning routine once a month, it wouldn't have the same impact on you. I'm guessing you do it every single morning. It's not about quality. It's not about quantity. It's about regularity. Mm -hmm. The magic is in small steps regularly. To your analogy, the droplets add up. It's really about that. You know, to regularly do that. And if somebody's not new to yoga, because I've been doing yoga for so many decades now, you know, the body has earned a certain amount of flexibility. So I don't need to do an elaborate practice. You know, the, all this thick stuff has been released. Uh, for somebody who's new to it, I invite you guys to explore going to a, your local fitness center, doing some Pilates or yoga or some kind of movement, just to get that movement back in the body. Because once you have it, then the rest is just maintenance. 100%. I, I think that people using their body, moving their body, connecting to their mind is number one. I mean, I've seen fitness and movement, whether it's yoga, whether it's Pilates, whether it's weight training, which is predominantly my wheelhouse, mm -hmm. really be the most powerful gateway for most people to start shifting in mm -hmm. the right direction, along with gratitude. Actually, I would say that gratitude is probably the easiest mm -hmm. because it only takes a couple of minutes. You don't need a gym membership. You don't even need shoes. You don't need a car. You don't need anything. You can mm -hmm. just be grateful in the moment. But fitness, though, moving the body connects you to your mind. And that's what I've seen in my own life, that mm -hmm. when you try to go in your head and work with all of these belief systems and limiting beliefs and thoughts about this and perceptions of that, etc., it's a very messy attic, so mm -hmm. to speak. A lot of things, cobwebs, things all over the place. But through your body, which is not as cerebral, it's more animalistic and mechanical, Everybody can move their body. Everybody can do something. But the mind will always follow the body in some capacity when you begin to move it. And that's what I've seen with, with our clients at my studio. Most people come in to change their body. But really why they're there is because they want to change their perception of self. Yeah. They don't have uh, confidence. They don't have self-esteem. They don't like how they look. They don't like how they feel. They might not connect deeply to those emotions. But they'll connect that they don't like their body, so they'll start there. But I know that that person who's coming there for their body is really coming there for their mind. And I also know as they begin to work on their body and chisel away at that, that they're also going to work on their mind. And the way they do anything is the way they do everything. So the healthier you become and the more you cultivate yourself, the more you change your perspective of reality. Physiology affects psychology. Psychology affects physiology. It's, 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 we start on one, it affects the other. Um, for the body, if you don't move it, you lose it. So it's, it's really that simple. Um, and for the mind, you know, timeless wisdom, meditation. Just sit and observe those thoughts coming and going. You, I've learned so much about myself just by sitting, you know. The art of sitting and doing nothing, you know, is uh, there's, there's a lot there. Uh, it's too much to unpack right now, but that's something really worthy of looking into. It's so good for the mind just to let all that 
that turbulence settle. Yeah. I'll just comment on that because I, I've been meditating now for about a month straight. Mm. And, uh, you know, we all hear it's good to meditate. And I have a, a mind that races around all over the place, running my own business and a lot of moving parts and, you know, all types of things that need my attention all the time. But many people have been telling me that I need to bring things down, become a little bit more Zen, connect more, you know, to presence. So I've started uh, doing meditation. It's been 30 days now. I've been using the app on my phone, Headspace. Start out with five minutes, then 10 minutes, then 15, then 20 minutes. And uh, what I just wanted to say in regards to what you were saying, because a lot of people out there perhaps have been also thinking about meditation and they haven't started the journey. As someone who's just started recently, it's, it's very interesting to see how your mind maneuvers and navigates when you try to be fully present and, uh, yeah, and, yeah. and connect to kind of silence and disconnect from the world. I mean, my mind was just bouncing around, focusing on my breath, then all of a sudden I'm thinking about this and I didn't even realize that I moved from the breath to this thing and I bring it back to the breath and then literally it just moves over here and I don't even see a jump, it's like a flea. It just appears <laughs> in another location. This it's is unreal. This, is, this goes back to the idea of sincere, not serious. Because if you take yourself seriously, it's very frustrating. <laughs> but if you're sincere, it's quite amusing, actually. <laughs> you know? What happens? Simple job. So, you know, just keep coming back to our breath very, very sincerely, very playfully. You're very, you know, no drama. Jump doesn't matter. Jump. Come back to the breath. But if you're serious about it, it's going to be very frustrating. You're going to give up. A hundred percent. And that's what I noticed. Have a I, sense of humor, you know? Exactly. And <laughs> what I realized was... A part of me, because mm -hmm. I think we all have this perfectionist part in ourselves. Yeah. Am I meditating correctly? Am I doing it right? But as soon as I let go of whether it was right or wrong, mm -hmm. and I just, I did it to do it, and whatever happened as a byproduct was the byproduct, yeah. it all of a sudden became really enjoyable mm -hmm. because you just let go of this idea of control and trying to make it something and mm -hmm. just letting it flow. That's exactly what I noticed. And as soon as I did that, all of a sudden the experience um, evolved and, and really changed at another level. And what, what I noticed happened in the beginning, when I did five minutes, it felt like 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And my mind was, when is this gonna be over? Yeah. Now, when I'm meditating, it actually, time flies by yeah. because you're not connected to time. Yeah. And it really is, and that's just been in, in one month of trying to do it. That's now. a I don't beautiful know if example of expanding a comfort zone, expanding a comfort zone, and all the aha, epiphanies, all that stuff happens just outside the comfort zone. That realization, oh, the five minutes feels like 20 minutes, but the 20 minutes feels like five minutes, How, yeah, and then you suddenly experience that. And you discover so much about life just by being willing to expand your comfort zone so much in just one month. You know, it's very powerful, very powerful. It is, it is. And then one of the reasons, uh, I'll just share with you one of the reasons I, I also started that. Uh, running a business, as you know, you said you have two companies, is no walk in the park. Mm. And uh, from the uh, outer perception, it doesn't seem too complicated. But beneath the outer perception, there's a lot of moving parts. There's everything from lead generation and marketing to follow-up processes and administration and emailing. And I mean, I can go on and on and I don't, I don't want to bore, in, bore anybody. But what I found myself uh, as I was doing all this stuff was, was losing myself a little bit and losing my well-being. And although I feel I'm a person who has a high stress threshold and I, mm -hmm. people usually comment that I'm a very relaxed and, and laid-back person and I, I feel I am, the body still will internalize stress, mm -hmm. whether you're aware of it or not. And I did notice my sleeping affected. I did notice other things being affected. So I said, you know, it's about time I start doing something to cultivate myself. 
but cultivate myself with more of a yin energy. So although I, I work out and I train, which I feel is more yang, which is more external pushing, something that was more yin, activating the parasympathetic nervous system, going into the rest, repair, and regenerate. Training, when you're not training, you recover from it. But in the moment of training, like I said, it's very yang. So that was one of the reasons why I got into the meditation and I found that it's, it's helped me tremendously. And I think that so many of us, whether it's meditation or whatever, need something to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm. And when I was reflecting on the, the state of our healthcare system, uh, mental health, physical health, disease, I, the statistics are crazy. I think one in two people get cancer. One in three people get cardiovascular disease. I mean, it seems like right now, if you don't have a disease, that it's not normal. It, it seems like the, the, the new normal is becoming this disease state. And I realized in reflecting on this that we're all living in this fight or flight state. We're all living in this yang energy state. And we're not taking any time to cultivate a yin energy. And it was that reflection just on society and the world that pushed me in reflecting on my own life to start meditating and realizing the importance of cultivating that energy that so many of us are lacking. Mm. So you've covered a lot of ground there, absolutely. There, there's a beautiful quote in the, in the ancient text called the Gita, one who sees action in inaction and inaction in action is wise indeed. So this points to the understanding that yin and yang can coexist. You can be very busy without a hint of stress. You can be totally stressed, but you're not doing anything. <laughs> you could be in a beach, sangria, and you know, wonderful, but you're so busy, you're stressed out. Yeah. So stress and busyness are not related. They're independent. Stress is an internal jammer. We're going to unpack this later on. But there you can be absolutely very, you know, you look at some of these, these yoga masters and so on. They do so much in their life. But you look at them, a picture, there's a hammock, you know, <laughs> relaxing. Uh, even like modern day people who have mastered meditation, uh, certain life coaches and motivational speakers and so on, who've really gone deep into meditation, they're doing so much. Yet there's an effortlessness to it. There's a, there's a mastery to it. Whenever you see a sense of effortlessness, uh, that's a state of mastery. When I see a Roger Federer playing tennis, you know, for example, it's mastery. It, he makes it look so easy. Or Steph Curry going for a three-point shot. It looks effortless. So you can be fully active, but there is this, uh, there is this witnessing quality. There's inaction behind that action. Mm -hmm. And every time... Anybody's tasted excellence, and I'm sure people have who are listening. There is an effortlessness quality to excellence. Because if you're gritting and grinding, you can be better, <laughs> you know? Uh, and vice versa, when you're completely still in action, seems like you're the Buddha statue, but there's so much action happening inside. So much physical sensation and thoughts and emotions going on. So there is action in the inaction. So even in life, when life is really jamming up, very gritty, there is also grace there if you know where to look. Maybe it's just your breath, you know? And if life is a summer song, everything is sweet. Do not lose your grit, you know? Stay focused. Practice, discipline, build. This is the time for you to grow. So, uh, so looking at the possibility of the two always coexisting, you know, the yin and the yang, they're both happening at the same time. You're going for that massive weight training goal, you know? Can that happen through you and not from you? 
I mean, that resonates with me 100%. I've been reflecting on a, on a few things and studying some different levels of consciousness recently. It's, it's funny you say that. And uh, one of the models that I was looking at was there being four levels of consciousness. The first level of consciousness, consciousness being to me consciousness, that life happens to you, that you're a victim, that things are out of your control. I mentioned that before. Then the second level being by me consciousness, where you kind of awaken a little bit and you become an achiever and you're trying to control your reality and you are a creator, but it's exhausting you and you're spending a lot of energy. Mm. And then the third level, which you just said, which is through me consciousness, where things are unfolding and sometimes uh, action is happening by inaction mm. and that there's almost this harmonious interconnectedness of everything that's unfolding that you're witnessing and you're participating observing and there's this kind of dance between the two and then the fourth level being as me consciousness mm -hmm. which is this this notion of uh, unity and full interconnectedness to everything but that through me level of consciousness has actually been one of my obsessions lately it's, this is grace this is when life becomes a blessing it, it's, it's like you're being carried through life you I have the front row seat an amazing story <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I call it real magic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that, a real magic, real excellence, real creativity, real compassion. It all comes from that place. And that's really where the flow state, I mm, feel, lives. That's what flow is. You know, athletes, like you mentioned Roger Federer before, mm -hmm. that these people, it's almost like out-of-body experiences. And I know when I do workshops and I do presentations, when I get into my groove of speaking, mm -hmm. I'm seeing myself speak. Mm -hmm. There's a moment whenever I speak, where I have this out-of-body experience and I see and feel myself speaking and I'm noticing that I'm speaking, mm -hmm. but I'm speaking, but I'm, I'm observing. I, I'm totally with you. And that, that's where and I... And sometimes I, you're saying things like, where'd that come from? <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I, and I feel that, that that through me level of consciousness is what can help so many people. You know, getting out of the victim mode into realizing you can control your life and then realizing that surrendering mm -hmm you know, not having to have control and, and, and getting rid of perfection and things having to be perfect and be a certain way and just allowing things to unfold. Not in a way where some people think of, you know, when they hear of this idea of things unfolding, it means just sitting there and doing nothing. Yeah, yeah. And I think that kind of ties into exactly what you were so, saying yeah. before. If the experience is not there, there's an open to misinterpret misinterpretation. Uh, you know, so there's, it's called Tamasic Rajasic Sattvic. It's been known since ancient times. But if it's all happening through me, I'll just sit here, eat my chips and potato and beer and I'll be fine. You know, it's all happening through me. That's what's called a tamasic interpretation, a heavy, dull, inert interpretation. Or you can go rajasic, which is like, hey, if it's all happening through me, I'll just rape and pillage and eat this and kill and hurt. You know, it doesn't matter. This is a, a very belligerent interpretation. When you really experience it, then you have a pure interpretation, a sattvic. When you really understand that your fear, your insecurity, your doubt is just jamming up the signal, you know from your own authentic self to shine. So you kind of get out of your own way. That's the purest way of experiencing it. Get out of your own way. You know, you just said the word uh, authentic. Mm -hmm. I think that's something important we should discuss, authenticity. I think we're probably living in one of the most uh, inauthentic times, especially with social media, especially with Instagram, which is very photo video driven, where you can portray whatever you want to the world and uh, I would say that more often than not, any portrayal one has of their reality is probably a falsehood of some kind. But connecting to authenticity, I feel, is really important. I feel is also linked uh, back to what we were talking about earlier, innocence. 
I, I feel that both are kind of in the same house. They might be in different rooms, but that they're in the same house and that uh, most people try and adapt to fit in with other people for fear of being rejected or not being accepted or not being loved and drift away from really being their true and authentic self. And that that drifting away, you know, talking about nature, like we talked about before being, being, being everything, that there's this unity, this wholeness, that as we drift away into this inauthentic self, that we separate ourselves from who we really are. And then that's where all the problems of life really come from, not knowing who you are, not having that self-awareness, not connecting to your authenticity and not vibrating in that state and attracting people into your life who really are energetically on the same wavelength, right? Because if I'm, you know, putting it on a channel that, uh, you know, to a horror movie and that's not really what I want to watch, but that that's what I'm observing in my life and mm -hmm. that I'm experiencing in my life versus putting it to the channel of, oh, this is Miles or this is Bashkar and this is who I am. And not everybody wants to watch the show, mm -hmm. but there'll be other people who want to connect to the show and watch it with you. And those are the people who you find closest to you, who accept you kind of for who you are, but it really starts with authenticity. So I know I went off on a little bit of a... There was a lot there, yeah, very, very beautiful. Um, yeah, morphing is exhausting. Being inauthentic is really exhausting, you know? The father Bhaskar, the, the yoga teacher Bhaskar, the entrepreneur Bhaskar, if I keep changing myself, that's so exhausting. Who's got that kind of time, you know? I've got to be a certain somebody for somebody else and something else, somebody else, keep wearing these different masks, very exhausting. Um, so to me, the the... The brightest point in the bright room, if you could summarize yoga into one shorter sentence, it would be practice the present. So the brightest spot is presence. If one can be totally present, it, there's a richness and a quality and a depth to that presence and intensity to it. And that, as a hue of that light, as a consequence of that, there is authenticity. You know, there is, there is patience, there is compassion, there is love. All that stuff is really is born from the quality of presence. So there's one practice at all, it is being present. Present, in the beginning, it seems like two things, external presence, to the sense, gates, lights, colors, shapes, internal presence, body sensations, and so on, thoughts and emotions. But then it just becomes presence. It just becomes one thing. So the whole thing, internal, external, is, is, is just an opportunity to be truly alive. And from that place, it is impossible to be inauthentic. You know, it is, it's like they, the two cannot coexist, they're mm -hmm. diametrically apart. So presence, inauthentic, cannot be in the same place at the same time. And to go back to your point about social media and things like that, it's no drama, just understand what it is. You know, a social media is a tool when people show the best of themselves and they share ideas to inspire people and whatever it was, share some thoughts and ideas, cool, that's what it is. Do not think that they live like that all the time, you know, this is a craziness. So, so social media to me is, I won't call it inauthentic, it's just one way people express themselves to connect with other people, perfectly fine. Um, and, uh, but once you understand that, you don't live in delusion that this person always looks as gorgeous and always spends time in Bahamas and always traveling around. They go through stuff, you know. So they're just showing that 10% or so that is worth showing to the world, you know. It's like putting on makeup before you step outside. Good, you're presentable, wonderful. <laughs> you know, I have no problem with that, you know? Um, so uh, so that, that's what it is. Once you understand what it is, it's no longer danger. But if you think it's something else, you know, uh, obviously you're, you're going to suffer. I think social media is definitely a double-edged sword. I mean, it, it, 
it can do a lot of good. It's an amplification mechanism for anything, good or bad, but it can be an amplification mechanism for great causes, great initiatives, bringing people together, raising money, helping people out. Uh, and at the same time, it can be something that can be destructive and create a destructive energy. Yeah. You know, the Buddhists have this understanding, in fact, many cultures do, that things inherently do not have any property. They don't, they don't have any value. They don't, they don't have any opinions. It is our projections that give them the values, mm -hmm. opinions. Uh, you know, technology is neutral. It's nothing. It's how we interact with it, how we use it, that gives it the value. You know, this book could have information or I could clobber somebody in the head with it. You know, <laughs> I give it the value. <laughs> Same with a knife. I can use a knife to save somebody's life like top level surgeons do, or I could do it to stab and kill somebody. The knife has no value. It's how I use it that has the value. So technology is like the knife. It's very sharp, it's very powerful. But what's more interesting is what's the hand that's holding it? That's the wisdom. If there's no wisdom behind the hand, if it's not skillful, then it's going to do a lot of harm. And that wisdom is what you can call cultivated consciousness. They build to see better and to use that knife wisely. Um, so social media is just another tool. You know, how are you going to use it? Is it going to torture you or is it going to help you? Right. I think you really brought up an important point there, which is that the individual and their collection of beliefs, associations, and perceptions ultimately defines what's taking place in, mm. in the outer world and the different oh, things that they're wielding so. and, and the relationships that they're having. And um, I've seen in my own life that whenever we're, we're wielding something in a certain way or we're connecting with someone or not connecting with someone in a certain way, that it always boils back down to one source, which is within ourselves. Mm. That there's this ecosystem in there that most of us haven't explored, most of us don't have self-awareness with, which if we do explore, helps us understand better what's, why we're doing what we're doing or why we're not doing what we're doing. And you know, Wayne Dyer had a, had a quote that I loved, which was, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Mm. Not that they change physically, but going back to your analogy with, uh, with the book that you can read it and acquire knowledge or clobber someone on the head with it, same book, different function, but the function is determined and dictated by the individual who's holding the book mm -hmm. and what they do or don't do with it is determined and dictated by mm -hmm. what's going on up here and how they see the world and how they see themselves and how they see themselves within the world. That's it. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. And this book is, you know, what we're having in our hands now is getting more and more powerful. You know, it's so a book can only do so much damage or so much information. Now you can carry 10,000 books in a little thing like this. Um, and also with the advent of AI and, and, and you know, virtual reality and 3D printing and robotics and all, we, you know, what we're holding now is extremely powerful. I know people who are in that industry of growing these industries. So the technology is neutral, but they've become extremely powerful. So the hand that holds them becomes that much more important. So as we kind of move forward in this world where we have these challenges, you talked about the environmental situation, climate change, all that kind of stuff. You know, how, how can we, we talked a lot about all these things that we can tap into, life hacks and conscious, we talked about a whole bunch of different things, but if, if we boil it back down and we, we get real with what's going on, the world is in a bit of a challenging place. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on what we need to do at this time as a society to move forward. Because the fact of the matter is, if we continue this way, I don't think this story is going to end well. Yeah, 
Yeah, people, are, I've been asked the question, are you, are you hopeful or, are you, you know, um, the truth is, I don't know. It's interesting. <laughs> the, the way the story is going is getting exponentially more interesting. Um, so what's going to happen next? I don't know. But what I do know is whatever is going to happen, the best I can do is show up in the best possible state. Optimum physical mental health, you know, that's the best I can do. No matter what situation is happening, I do know that the quality of my presence is the best chance I will have to serve the situation. Uh, so that's at a personal level. It's become that much more important for us to get into optimum mental and physical health. Uh, and I include quality of presence, spiritual practice and everything else. Um, but as a collective, you know, there's a, there's a necessary shift that we all either go through or the story ends. That shift from scarcity to generosity, from competition to collaboration. Yeah, and it's never been easier to do that now. There's so much generosity out there right now, we're not acknowledging. You know, for me, for me to get information right now, I can get information so fast, that's generous. I can watch thousands of hours of my favorite teacher on videos, it's generous, uh, for free, you know. Um, there's so much shared and free things going on right now. There's so many people who are collaborating. Uh, right now, because of this little gadget, I can hook up with somebody in Bangkok and Brazil and in Barbados and do some amazing things that were never possible before. It's never been easier to collaborate and co-create. Technology has offered us that. So let's use that, you know, uh, to optimum potential. There's so much amazingness of creativity that I see in the entrepreneurship world, so many great ideas. I individually can be really good at one thing, you know, cool. Say for example, I'm a violin player. I've practiced, practiced, become really good at it. The best I can do is play violin really well. But now if I join an orchestra, now I'm with a really talented saxophone player and a drummer and a guitarist and all these other people. And suddenly I can do so much more than I could as a violin player. I have so much more capability and creativity. And that's what this is about. And the magic here is, it's not about how good I'm as a violin player. It's not about the maestro. It's not about the orchestra. It's about the music. And I invite people to focus on the music. What kind of music do we want? It's not the individual things. It's the whole thing. We have individual divergent skills, all of us. We're all born genius. And now we have an opportunity to come together, you know, like the cells of my body coming together. What are we coming together for? The cells are coming together to create Bhaskar. And what's our purpose as humanity? What's our music? You know, let's serve that music. I'd be delighted to be part of that. And that's what I'm commit committed to. So anybody who wants to make good music, let's do that together. It's never been easier. And just from that place alone, we, we can avert this crisis and turn it into utopia very, very fast. It might sound idealistic, but I know people who are doing this. I know people who are very aware of the crisis we are in at every level, yet they're so full of love and compassion and playfulness, and they are major game changers, like massive organizations completely built on generosity and kindness. It's happening right now. There are companies that are just rocking it in the culture of kindness and care. So if you do not make that shift right now as a company, practically speaking, you're a dinosaur, you know? because you'll be completely destroyed by companies that are collaborating, co-creating, and doing incredibly amazing things that's, that's going to make you obsolete. So uh, it's a very pragmatic and profound thing to embrace this shift of not trying to be a, a pyramid that you control everything, but being more like a spider web where every link in the chain matters and every part plays an important uh, part, uh, role in it. 
um, and everyone's playing to their strengths. You know? So that's a possibility that's very likely. And I'm committed to supporting that, you know, no matter what happens. No matter what happens. I mean, you said so many great things in there. I mean, nobody knows the outcome of anything. Everything is an educated guess at best, and we try and do our best to maneuver, and some people don't care, some people care. I mean, it's always going to be like that. Um, you said a couple things in there I wanted to touch on. Number one, I mean, starting with yourself as an individual, you know, becoming the best, healthiest, strongest, happiest version of yourself because you bring you everywhere you go. Mm. And if you bring you to other people and to a community, like you were saying, there's an amplification of things. Mm. You play the violin, you get a certain type of music, you collaborate and co-create with other musicians, and now you get a different dimension of music that's coming forward where one plus one equals five. You know, this, this exponential growth through collaboration. And, and that's one of the things that I think got us into the mess we're in now, mm. disconnecting. Individuation, right? so, separation, scarcity. Correct. Yeah. So you're playing the violin in your home, I'm playing the saxophone in my home, she's playing the trombone in her home, and it's everybody is, is, is doing something, but we're not collectively, as, a, as really humanity, coming together and asking ourselves, what do we want as, as, a, as, a, as a race. Music, what's the music? Exactly. How beautiful can the music be? Exactly, yeah. and I think, you know, just like we lose ourselves in lives, in our lives, that, you know, sometimes the destruction of things like what we're witnessing now with the polar ice caps melting and, you know, certain species becoming uh, extinct, it's kind of like our own conscious wake-up call to self-reflect, just like life likes to throw you a couple of curveballs where it forces you to grow. And that uh, as bad as things might potentially be, they are what they are. But if we're aware of them, that they could be the gateway into us actually as a culture, raising our consciousness and evolving and really defining where we want to go mm. as humanity versus as these separate instruments just mm. in, our own, in our own worlds, disconnected from, uh, from everybody else. Disconnected. And, and here's how the law of nature works. When you're connected with everybody and serving a mighty purpose, playing to your strengths, that feels really good. When you're in that place of, of deep care, compassion, kindness, generosity, sympathetic joy, it feels really good. It viscerally feels very good, very practically feels good. And if you're in the space of scarcity, anger, fear, hatred, ill will, it feels really bad. Just from that practical level, why not hang out with the stuff that feels good? Absolutely. And, and talking about things that feel good and, uh, and contributing and trying to make the world a better place, I wanted you to talk a little bit about Ghana mm. and what that really represents and what you're trying to do with it because I think that it's unbelievable and I think that that plays a huge role in terms of people reconnecting to an energy within themselves and connecting to other people. So tell people a little bit about what Ghana is and what it represents. I'll agree with you actually objectively because it is beautiful <laughs> and it's not mine. You know, it's the mighty purpose I'm honored to serve. And it's a very simple idea that is already benefiting people with the potential to serve more. And dana is an ancient word. Uh, it, it means generosity, or to practice generosity. And it's the foundation of almost all the cultures around the world, this foundation of being a generous human being. Every culture worth its name is, is going to value that. And somehow along the way, we lost sight of that in this mechanistic, competitive, scarcity-based world. And dana is more for remembering you know, remembering how good it feels to be generous, remembering how good it feels to share your gifts, to help others and uplift others. The spirit of many helping many. 
Um, so what Dana practically is, is we invite people to offer their space. You know, so many of us are space millionaires. So allow us to borrow your space for a couple of hours a, a week maybe. And then we, we invite a, a, a wellness professional to go to that place. Could be anybody, dance, music, art, nutrition, whatever that uplifts the human condition. We offer these classes. Anybody can come and participate. And afterwards, they're invited to make an anonymous contribution. And the contributions allow the classes to keep going. And this system of Dana has been around for centuries. We're just bringing it to modern context with the geolocators and the online registration and online payments. That's all modern. But the, the technology allows us to, to amplify a very ancient idea. And it's so simple, yet it's so profoundly beneficial. Now, we all have knacks and talents and attributes, and it feels so good to share that and help people with that. So it's an opportunity to do that. Uh, we've already piloted the project in many places around the world. It is globally ready. And, uh, you know, we've just finished our 28th retreat, 28 retreats in two years. The whole thing is not for profit, no investors, no nothing. It's just people contributing and the contribution allows us to keep on the next one and the next one. So they're not just contributing to that class. They're contributing to the continuation of that class. Not just for the next class, but it continues on throughout their neighborhood, throughout the world for generations. You know, so that's the spirit of generosity. It comes from the heart. It's not an intellectual thing. You know, when I first learned yoga, uh, it was done this way. I went to a complete stranger's home. I'd never been there before. I met this man, Nanda Kumar. I'd never seen him before. I was very inspired. I practiced. And I saw people giving him a white envelope in the end of the class. So, okay. <laughs> so, nobody told me what to put. I just put some money in there and gave it to him. You know? And, uh, and that's how I learned yoga. It was so sincere. It was so simple. No question, no price tag, no membership, no expiry date. You just come, you feel good, you appreciate, and you give from the heart. Simple, um, yet profound. Because now suddenly everybody can, can have access to basic healthcare practices. Everybody can be a part of a community. And everybody can feel the dignity of being generous. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And you've been working on this particular project for how long exactly? Officially now, uh, it's been three years. Um, so we, the whole thing started... You know, when I closed my yoga center, I had two yoga centers, we closed it down because I was going through a time in my life and I was overwhelmed. Uh, there was too much going on in my life. And the students actually said, hey, you know, uh, why are you closing the center? I said, you know, once I'm done paying all the rent, electricity, heating, you know, marketing and teachers and all that stuff, there was nothing left really. I was doing it for fun. But I just can't do it anymore. And they start to offer their space. The one man says, use my basement, you know, come and teach my basement. Another, another lady goes, if I remove my dining room table and furniture, I can have about 12 people come teach in my house. So the students offer their space. So a week later, I had a dollar store box. I went from house to house. I do what I always do. I taught the class, hugged them, grabbed the box, came back. And inside was full of money, you know. So my God, this is so simple. I have no overheads. I just show up. I do what I love to do, which is teach. And I'm supported. So my girlfriend and I, Carolyn and I, we said, there's something here worthy of attention. So we made a very simple three-minute video, put it on Indiegogo, crowdfunding campaign, and it raised $17,000 Canadian. That's just a video in complete strangers from around the world, from Dubai, from Hong Kong, from Amsterdam, just started contributing towards this simple idea. And so the idea came from the students. It was built by the global community. You know, so it doesn't belong to anybody. Mm. Nobody's building Dana for somebody. We're building it with everybody. So it's a whole different philosophy. 
um, anybody is welcome to come and co-create, share their gifts, be a part of it, offer their space, come and practice. It's open. That's amazing. And uh, so for anybody who's listening to this, I mean, the way you describe it to me, we, we've talked about Donna before, the, mm -hmm. the concept and the notion of what you're doing with them. And I think it's unbelievable because it's, it's approaching people connecting from a different energy. Mm. Um, if anybody wants to kind of get involved in that movement or offer their space up or how do they go about doing that? They can visit the website uh, globaldana.org, globaldana.org or download the app Dana, D-A-A-N-A. -A, and there's a little video that kind of invites people and shares the concept. And then you can see right there, you teach a class, offer a space, you know, whatever you want to do is send us a message. Uh, we have Facebook, obviously, and social media, things like that, Instagram, and so on. So the many ways to reach us, it is D-A-A-N-A. -A -A. Um, and uh, obviously, my own personal website has information about Dana, which is basically myname.com, paskaragosumi.com. So it's totally available for people. And as I mentioned, we've tested this out in many different places in the world. So if somebody's in Singapore right now or Australia hearing this, yeah, we can get Dana going on there. Uh, it's possible. So, um, so right now we're focusing very much on, on really deepening the understanding and the culture of Dana because it's new, like you said, shifting from scarcity and fear and this sort of a thing to a place of generosity and connection. Some people have difficulty with that. It's understandable because we've been so programmed for so many decades. It's cool. So now we're looking at, at really making it very simple for people to understand what this is. And it's really simple. If you think, if you come from the heart, it's really simple. If you come from the head, it's very complicated. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it, you know, fundamentally, it is very simple. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it's really a beautiful thing. And, and it actually allows people to tap into that part of themselves mm -hmm. that I think is so important, right? Mm -hmm. This contribution without having any pressure or expectations on the individual to contribute something in some way, shape, or form, mm. but just having them connect to that generosity. Mm. Uh, I mean, I really see what you're working on and the, the concept of Dana as being the gateway or one gateway. Yeah. You know, there's so many gateways, but one of the gateways that people can really uh, tap into that part of themselves and remember who they are and, and see that, you know, gold statue, yeah, you know, those glimmers exactly. of that underneath, underneath exactly. the It's mud. the chipping of the mud, this Dana. That's what it is, chipping of the mud. Exactly. But you're chipping your own mud. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And then as you chip your own mud, though, yeah. you know, you give permission to others to chip their own mud. Yes, And it yes, becomes yes. this rippling effect uh, through space-time where it just propagates. So I have the privilege of watching these golden Buddhas appearing in front of me all the time. That's, that's where I get my high, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. And the thing is, two and a half years to three years now, people are generous. Given the opportunity in the context, in the safe space, people are generous because that's who we are. Absolutely. I really believe that as well. I believe that underneath all the layers mm -hmm. and, and all the nonsense going on, that, that people are fundamentally, you know, loving souls, generous people. We've just, you know, forgotten who we are and, and, and the fear of this and the fear of that and what she thinks and he thinks and all this essentially nonsense that we've built up because it's all byproducts of our own thought matrices. It's not real. Mm. We've just elected for it to be real because we associate to it, but it's not. Mm. It's really not. And I think uh, projects like the one you're working on mm. are important because it's just a way for people to reconnect to who they are yeah. and remind themselves at that fundamental level of who they are. And um, no, it, it's great. It, honestly, it's, it's phenomenal. And I'm, I'm so happy to hear that it's a project that's not just here in Montreal, 
but mm -hmm. that's touched many different parts of the globe and that many mm -hmm. people are involved in. And I am sure that Donna is going to keep to grow on, on a large scale, especially in these types of times that are a bit chaotic. I feel that these, these things like Donna and other things that are causing people to tap into their generosity and, mm -hmm. and into their heart and into their own awareness uh, are really going to lead the way as we move forward as a society. Mm, beautiful. Thank you so much for your good, good thoughts and blessings. Uh, it's just a simple intention to feel good. If you want to feel good, check it out. <laughs> you know, it's that simple. Yeah. So one more thing I want to ask you about. So Donna, this big thing that's in your life, I understand. Are there other projects or things you're working on? And as, as a follow-up to that, you know, is, is Donna the project you're working on? Is that your legacy? Do you have other ideas for where you want to go and what you want to do and how you want to contribute? Like kind of where are you at? The, the future of Bashkar, what, how do things look? Yeah, the word legacy is funny because for me, my only real thing is presence. My, the only thing I'm committed to really is being more fully present. Just because I find life to be a very precious gift and I want to show up for it. So that's my personal practice. You know, Dana comes on, this is my personal thing. Of course, it's a privilege to, to offer my gifts uh, and attributes to serve Dana. I'm delighted and honored to do so. Uh, as I said, I have a front row seat and all these beautiful things happening. So as long as that's going on, I'll be happy to serve. Um, legacy, you know, I, I don't really resonate so much with that. You know, I, for me, I, I want people to have such a good time, to have such thriving, happy lives. They, don't, they forget about Pascar. <laughs> Not because the lives are so good, you know, and uh, there is a simple idea, you know, it's basic etiquette, you know, you show up in uh, somebody's house, you want to leave the house, it is same or better than when you left it. And this is my intention to show up in this earth and leave it same or better than I found it. And I sincerely feel that Dana can help leave it better. Amazing, amazing. Guys, if this wasn't a conscious conversation, I don't know what, what is, but Honestly, Bashkar, this was really amazing to connect with you and go into all these different topics. And I only feel we scratched the surface on yeah. all these things from consciousness to presence to generosity to authenticity. I mean, there's so many amazing nuggets in there and also tactical and practical things like you talked about cold showers and morning routines and gratitude. I mean, there's just 101 plus things that we, we discussed and shared. And I definitely want to make sure that we connect again and, and explore some of those concepts more deeply. But uh, yeah, I just want to thank you for being present today with me, uh, sharing your thoughts and, and connecting on a deep level and, and just being two human beings, just existing side by side. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much. Cool, man. To be continued. <laughs> to be continued. That's it. Part two coming soon. Part two coming soon. Stay blessed. Hey guys, thanks for listening in to the Miles Fit Transformation Show. I hope you really enjoyed this episode and took a lot of value from it. And hopefully it serves as the catalyst for your transformation on another level. Be sure to go find Miles Fit on all social media platforms. We're on Instagram at Miles Fit. You can find us on Facebook by searching Miles Fit. We have Snapchat as well our great website blog at milesfit.com and you can sign up for our newsletter as well there so guys again thanks for tuning in and stay tuned for more shows